Welcome. It's September 7th, 2013, the year of our Lord. This is Tribal Theocrat Live, episode 29, Would You Believe It? I'm Christian Gray. Thanks for listening tonight. Join the chat room at tribaltheocrat.com and click the chat button at the top. If you have questions for our guest tonight, ask them there. The format tonight will be more of a conversation than usual, and our guest is Tim Harris. His blog is butler-harris.org. And tonight we discuss the topic of the Holy Catholic Church, misconceptions, our obligation to it, and such things. A subject that he's written on there, that blog, by the way. So, Tim, welcome to the show, friend. Oh, thank you very much. Good to be here. How has your week been? Oh, you know, uh, it's full of variety and uh, <clears throat> and laziness. Uh, <laughs> I always feel like I should be doing more than I'm doing, but, uh, you know, we muddle through somehow. We do indeed. I thought we'd start off in, by having you tell our listeners about your blog and your interest in tonight's topic. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> the blog is uh, at the link that you just gave. Um, uh, we call it Afterthoughts. Um, started in 2006, and the way it came about was um, my friend Mike Butler and I, um, you know, we did a lot of reading together. And then we, what we did is we just started discovering new topics of interest as we, uh, we kind of had an informal uh, email group, you might say, where we would uh, post a uh, provocative email to a dozen friends, and then that would start a lively discussion and so forth. And then that would finally die down, and then maybe a month later we'd do it again. Um, and it just struck me that uh, it might be interesting to do that in a forum where more people could kind of participate in the discussion. So I, uh, you know, figured out how to start a WordPress blog and uh, just did it, I think, in August of 2006. So it's been going on. It's hard to believe it's seven years now. Yeah. I've been reading your blog for a long time and have, have benefited well, from a lot of the good stuff you've written there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when we, when we first started it, we made the beginner's mistake. You know, we were each posting like an article and sometimes two articles a day, literally. Oh, wow. Um, and it was just a flood. Uh, it did generate some uh, interest, uh, you know, for a while. People would come over, and uh, and that was um, leading up to the um, midterm election of 2006. So we, we posted some anti-Republican stuff, and that generated a great deal of heat um, and so forth. But then slowly, you know, you, uh, you have to settle into the routine of life. And so the frequency of posting, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly got less and less frequent. And now I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that it's gotten to be somewhat of a rare thing now, but uh, nevertheless, uh, still there officially. Yeah, the, the good thing about your articles is even though you have to wait a while for a new post, they're always very profound and something well, you can't just read very quickly. They're very, well, thank you, very thank good you. posts. <laughs> and, and speaking of uh, irritating pro-Republican Christians, it's amazing how in, in today's political climate, Christians seem to be giving up well, maybe not giving up, but there's a lot of Christians that are a, a bit upset about the Republican Party. Even Matt Drudge on DrudgeReport.com, who has a history of being somewhat of a, more, a warmonger, is now asking the question, why would anybody vote for a Republican? Yeah. It's a good sign. That's interesting. Now, of course, if the if the alternative is to say, therefore, you should vote for the Democrat, that would be the wrong well, conclusion to, yeah. to reach. Although in 2006... Um, uh, I did vote for the first time in my life the straight Democratic ticket, 
I, had, I think I had only voted Republican up until that time. But I, but then at the same time, that's, that was probably the last election that I voted in at, at all. Um, in Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time, there was a tremendous uh, rage against the W, right, rightfully so, for waging these um, bootleg wars against Iraq and Afghanistan. And Santorum was the um, neocon warmonger senator, and he went down in defeat that year. And there was a tremendous amount of um, quite suburban backlash against uh, the Republicans. Uh, and I felt like I felt a little bit proud of myself that I was kind of part of that uh, groundswell. But of course, now we we always did know, but now now we see with uh, Yo Mama that uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, as far as just war theory, which party you go with? I mean, they're both a bunch of murdering um, wretches. This is true. <clears throat> this is true. Well, when people hear the word, the phrase Holy Catholic Church, there's probably some confusion. Some people have disinterest. Why is this topic important? And let's go from there. Okay. Well, um, of course, the term Holy Catholic Church appears in the Nicene Creed. Um, toward the end of the creed, uh, we confess churches that use that as their um, statement. Um, we believe one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I think in the Apostles' Creed it's uh, slightly abbreviated. The Holy, the Holy Catholic Church, I think, even in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the Lutherans um, change that, and they use the word Christian where the word Catholic appears. Um, which is saying the same thing, but toning down the emphasis of the word Catholic. It's, of course, the Catholic with the small c, um, the church universal. So it's the apostolic aspect of the church is emphasizing the continuity in time. In other words, we're one in time from the time of Christ through the apostles right up to the present. And the word Catholic emphasizes the fact that we're one spatially, you might say. Wherever you find Christians, they are part of the same church, hence, hence its Catholicity. So it's an important uh, theme for us to um, treasure and to confess, as long as we understand it, you know, what the significance of the words are. So even though there is one universal Christian church, there are many visible denominations and individual churches. The, the, the inevitable question is which ones are legitimate or are they all legitimate anywhere people get together with Bibles? Is that a church? So maybe let's dive into the question of, of which denominations and how, how we go about determining which churches are valid, which ones are invalid and so forth. Well, just to kind of not, not to, really answer that directly, but to clear the stage so that we can try to answer that, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of the historical setting. Until America, you know, America is the source of so many problems, but when you look at the um, <clears throat> Reformation, the history of Europe, Luther Luther did not want to leave the church, the Catholic church. He, he wanted to preach the gospel, and because he did that, he... Um, he discovered, rediscovered the gospel and started preaching it. Because of that, he was ex excommunicated by the Pope. And so the Lutheran church in Germany became, in those kingdoms that adopted it, became the continuing Holy Catholic Church. And similarly, throughout Europe, 
you could say the same thing. Basically, each church, each nation that accepted the teachings of the Reformation um, had a national settlement, you might say. So in, in the Netherlands, the national settlement, it became the church that we call the Dutch Reformed Church, Hervormd Kerke. And in Switzerland, uh, you know, after the Zwinglian reforms, that church became the Reformed Church of Switzerland. And um, different principalities in Germany also became Reformed, and they became the Reformed Church of Germany. And those that um, adopted Lutheranism became the Lutheran Church. Same with Sweden. Sweden went to the uh, Lutheran Reformation, and so that became the, the Swedish Lutheran Church. Likewise, when England uh, became adopted uh, the gospel, you might say, that national settlement is what we call the Church of England, and in Scotland, the Church of Scotland. So the, the, the situation is very clear-cut when you look at Europe. It's the continuing Holy Catholic Church and its national settlement. The Church of Scotland, of course, is uh, what we call the Presbyterian Church. Now flash forward, you know, to the emigration to America. All these people from all these different places came to America and continued, set, you know, continued to worship and have the liturgy of the church that they had back home. So because America never had a national settlement, you know, the Church of England became the Episcopal Church and the, uh, the um, Church of Scotland became the Presbyterian Church. And the um, Dutch Reformed Church became the Dutch Reformed. And the German Reformed became the German Reformed Church of America, and so forth. So, and then what happened was because of the, um, you know, the free independent spirit of Americans, the, the, the you know, the, the westward trek, the rugged individualism and so forth, you know, you had disagreements, people were splitting off from them. Till now, you have thousands of denominations, but most of them trace back, at least most of the legitimate ones that aren't like evangelical independents, trace back to one of those national church settlements in Europe. So that's kind of what I take as my starting point in discussing this. Don't start with America, you know, with this, these thousands of confusing denominations, but instead start by thinking about the national settlement in each of the European countries and, and then reflect on what that means as far as, you know, what does it mean to be the church? It's interesting that, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, there's a much closer harmony between tribe and church because nations in Europe, of course, are tribal, ethnic, uh, ethnically based uh, historically. And then the churches were uh, nationally settled. Cuius regus, cuius uh, religio, or whatever that expression was. Um, uh, so, you know, in a sense, you had um, a harmony of uh, church and people at that time. Now in America, it's all gotten scrambled up and that's what makes the issue confusing. Yeah, it is very confusing. Which, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, so, I mean, I guess what I, the, the short answer to your question, therefore, is that those churches are legitimate, which can show continuity to the Holy Apostolic Church. And, um, and then we can start discussing individual cases, you know. Um, but what I what I finally came to realize in my reflecting on this subject is that um, apostolic succession is is really a necessary part of being able to claim to be a legitimate um, church, properly understood, not understood the way Roman Catholics understand that term, or even some Episcopals. 
But nevertheless, there is a, a concept of apostolic succession um, revealed through ordination particularly. So maybe we can go into that now or at some point. But So that would be the key that I would look at. Um, so, for instance, right away, you know, if you wanted an example of a church that I think we are a, a claimant to the title church that we could reject almost out of hand, it would be uh, Doug Wilson's CREC, C-R-E-C, because there you have a man, Douglas Wilson, who's essentially self-ordained. He called himself to the ministry and then um, ordained himself, in effect. I mean, he got some people to put hands on him, but it had no true uh, succession from a legitimate church body, and therefore the the body that he uh, created has no standing whatsoever. And, and, and there's a lot of a lot of confusion on that. I, I think it's been a big mistake in uh, Reformed circles, especially to treat Doug Wilson and the Crick as if they have, as if they're Reformed, a Reformed church, just because they drew up a document that uses the word Presbyterian in it. Um, it isn't. I can go into more detail as to why, but th- that's maybe that would fuel the discussion by giving a concrete example. Yeah, I think they call that, that view is called doctrinal succession. So as long as a church believes in the same material doctrines as the historic church, then I guess you're grafted in somehow. Well, that's right. And, and it's sort of the analog of the um, the other um, kind of slogan that has created a great deal of confusion, I think, in reform circles especially, and um, and many circles in America, the appeal is to this concept of the invisible church as being the basis of um, our inclusion and our unity, you know, in the Holy Catholic Church. So, for example, um, the Westminster Confession defines the invisible church in a particular way to be all all of the elect, past, present, and future, you know, whether dead or alive or not yet born. So the problem with that, though, is it's a useful concept if you're trying to discuss the problem of hypocrites. In other words, when you're discussing the question, like, is everybody that's a member of the church a Christian or you know, truly united to Christ, then that's an important distinction to, to make that distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. But I think many people try to let that phrase do too much work. And so they say basically anybody that believes is, is a member of the invisible church, and that's the end of the discussion. Um, but that's clearly kind of a vacuous notion. I mean, imagine a um, secular society, like say um, the American Society of Mathematicians. Let's say they were having recruitment problems. And then they say, well, from now on, we claim as our member, anybody in the whole world that's a mathematician, whether secretly or publicly, they're, they're now a member of our organization. Well, that doesn't do any work. I mean, how does that help? We can't, we can't find these people. We don't know who they are. There's no list of their names. So when it's, when it's pressed into that type of service, it's really not very useful, I, I feel. I remember a scene in the movie The Apostle, where Robert Duvall baptizes himself in the pond. Exactly. <laughs> and makes himself the apostle. And I remember a couple, several years back as well, when I had some friends that were reading the Bible and they became Christians and very passionate about about Christian doctrine and so forth, but they weren't baptized and they weren't part of a local body. So they baptized each other in the bathtub. And I just thought... I, I, <laughs> And they were really, you know, really spiritual about it. I just figured something seems wrong about this, but I couldn't quite put my hand on it. Yeah. Well, you know, Roger Williams is an example that's commendable in our history in in one way, in the sense that 
you know, he believed that um, the church of the church that had succession, namely the Church of England in his case, had become so corrupt that it no longer could be called a church. And so he tried to do exactly just that, what you said. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of the details, the struggles that he had with cotton and so forth. But when he finally ended up in Rhode Island, he tried to do exactly what you just said. And he was even um, mutually baptized, rebaptized with a friend. He baptized and was baptized in turn um, and tried to like rebootstrap the church that way. But to his credit, uh, Roger Williams, you know, was a smart guy and he finally realized that this won't do. You know, you can't just, you can't just start a church from scratch as if, as if it's a new thing. And so toward the end of his life, he, he just had Bible studies at home with his wife and uh, gave up, gave up any hope of being part of the church. And he thought that the only way the church could uh, uh, get a new start would be by a, a divine miracle. You know, that would be uh, kind of equivalent to a new apostolic uh, foundation. So at least he was, at least he was um, consistent enough to realize the absurdity of his own principles. And, you know, he lived, he lived out his days, you know, just as a, as a lone island in his own house. I think I remember a conversation or a, a somewhat of a debate that opened up on a thread at Green Baggins' blog on this very question. And Doug Wilson was a participant in the thread. And either you or your colleague or someone, some friend of ours was asking him about his qualifications. And he appealed to John Knox's unordinary ordination as, oh, that's right. as, that's as right. a justification. So perhaps this takes us into the question of, of proper succession. Yeah. Well, see, yes, I have written on um, Green Baggins a number of, on several threads on this subject. Um, had some interesting discussions there. And the one that you're talking about was one of them. Um, I've also uh, pointed these things out on blog and made blog from time to time, even his own uh, home turf. Um, the the fallacy, I'm not an expert on the life of John Knox, but I do know that he was ordained as a priest while he was still in the Catholic Church. And for me, that's enough to establish the succession. And then later on, I guess I guess he was reordained or ordained properly, you might say, um, after he had already gotten well into his ministry. And so that's what Doug Wilson is trying to kind of uh, hang his hat on. But that's that's neither here nor there. I mean, what, what I want to say is that all of the reformers, you know, Luther, Calvin, um, Knox, and so forth, uh, their ordination under the Roman Catholic auspices retained its validity because they weren't trying to start a new church. They were reforming the existing church that they had received through succession. Um, I, I said Calvin. I'm not. It's unclear uh, at what point Calvin was ordained. Um, so I, I don't want to imply that he was already ordained under the Catholic Church. But uh, some people even claim that Calvin never was ordained. However, when you look at his teaching on the subject of ordination, where he actually basically identifies ordination as a third sacrament, if you look in Book Four, um, it's inconceivable to me that he would have continued in the ministry and not have been ordained. But he he wasn't the type of man to talk about himself a lot. So, you know, we don't have a record of the day and place, but it's 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 a um, necessary inference, I feel, to say that he was ordained. So all of the reformers either were ordained by properly constituted presbyteries or already had ordination before the Reformation took place. So uh, I, I think that was a complete rabbit trail that uh, that Doug tried to establish. I just found that post and one thing Butler said, he says, let's get, let's get this straight. Since Knox's ordination was irregular, 
it follows that any irregular ordination should be recognized by the church. <laughs> and then he says well, that this isn't the end of the story either on regarding Knox. There's there's more to it. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So in other words, it's sort of a um, two layer argument there. I mean, if if he was if his ordination was irregular, we can't set that up as a norm. Yes. But moreover, it's not clear that his ordination was irregular. True. So that's kind of the twofold thing there. But the thing that really got me going on this subject was just thinking about the logic of ordination, which in, in the New Testament is um, is described as the laying on of hands. And if you, if you think of the symbolism of the laying on of hands, that's a very powerful symbol that goes back to the Old Testament, where, when the uh, priests laid their hands, for example, on the scapegoat to confer the guilt of the people on the scapegoat, which was then released to wander off, you know, symbolizing that you know, their sin had been transferred to this animal who now is gone. So your sins are, you're taken away. So the, the notion of laying on of hands symbolizes that um, there's a conferral of something. In that case, it would be the sin, but in this case, it would be the authority of office. And when I thought about the logic of that, it's very clear, we could talk about specific passages, but it's very clear from the uh, New Testament also that only those that had had hands laid on them could lay hands on someone. In other words, it's a link in a chain. Each link in the chain is hanging from the link that preceded it. You know, it's, it's like the natural number series. I mean, each each number has a successor. Six is a successor of five. Five is a successor of four, and so forth. Every single natural number is a successor of another number until you get down to zero, and that's where it begins. So what you need is a principle of succession and an absolute beginning. And that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. We have the Lord Jesus Christ uh, commissioning the apostles, breathing on them, and giving them the commission to be the authoritative founders of the church in its new form. And then from that moment on, you have the conferral of authority through the laying on of hands. And to me, once, once you kind of understand the logic of that and the fact that people that have not had hands laid on them cannot lay hands on, Apostolic succession is a, is a necessary logical deduction. I mean, I, I would love it if somebody could show me um, where that reasoning is wrong, because it, it kind of makes life difficult in a way, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. But um, to me, the logic of that is, um, you know, it's inescapable. I, I think you're right. I remember first getting into this issue, and your articles were helpful to me, but I thought about a passage in Hebrews 6 where it, it refers to the laying on of hands as one of the elementary teachings of the faith. So That's that, right. That assumes That's right. that... That's very astute that you picked up on that. It's, it, it puts it right there with baptism and... Uh, repentance, yeah. And repentance. So far and, from... And even saying that if you're still struggling with that issue, you know, you should ask yourself whether you're even in the faith. I mean, that's kind of the force of that passage yeah. in Hebrews 6. That's a, that's a good point. So far from being a dispensable doctrine or some kind of Roman Catholic accretion, it's it's foundational. Well, that's right. And, and we have to remember that the Roman Catholic Church uh, was our church up until 1517. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I claim Augustine and Aquinas and all of those fathers as my fathers. Um, whatever errors they might have made, of course, we don't confess, uh, we don't confess inerrancy of the church, but, uh, nevertheless, um, for all of its errors and mistakes, that was the church that in the West was the successor from the apostles. Yes. But where I think that the Catholic and then the Episcopals have gone wrong is in narrowing that concept to a specific man to man, a bishopric, 
uh, succession, rather than as Paul mentions in his letter to Timothy, first, uh, first Timothy four 14, um, the laying on of hands of the presbytery. And so I think that the way, proper way to interpret the, um, the, the, the doctrine of succession of ordination is through a plurality of men that have had laid, hands laid on them, known as the presbytery. Now, I'm willing to um, cut as much slack as possible. So, for example, when you have an Episcopal church like the Church of England, uh, I'm pretty sure that when a man is ordained, it's not just one bishop that approves of it, but I think two or three are necessary to approve that he's going to be ordained. And then, then of course, at that point, it becomes a man-to-man ordination. But there's still kind of a virtual presbytery, you might say. In other words, there's a plurality of ordained men that make the decision. So even where people don't think they're Presbyterians, they still basically have the rudiments of what's involved, just not in perfect form. And so, um, and similarly, even Baptists, um, I've made this point on my blog a few times, so I hope I'm not, you know, beating a dead horse, but Sherman Isbell pointed out that um, on ordination day, Baptists are Presbyterians also because they typically uh, gather a dozen or however many they can find ministers that come together on ordination day. And they're familiar with the man being ordained. They've, they're familiar that he's doctrinally sound and seems to be called to the ministry. And they essentially give their blessing to it. And then they lay hands on him and ordain him. So, you know, all of a sudden willy nilly, what you find is that true Christians everywhere uh, have maintained this concept, despite whatever defects they might have in, uh, in their theory of church government. But the ones that don't have it are the groups like Doug Wilson, who just think that you can make up a book of church order and get some guys together at Starbucks. And, okay, uh, let's have Doug as our archbishop. We'll lay hands on him. That obviously can't work because it's you, you don't have any uh, principle of the succession whatsoever. And, and I'm afraid more and more churches, so-called churches in America are, are of that stripe. What's What's particularly bothering is the churches that pride themselves in being non-denominational. Right. They, they even say it out there on their marquee board. We are in a non-denominational Christian church. And yeah. So in other words, what they're saying is, you know, we don't need no stinking yeah. um, accountability or fellowship with, with no one else. Um, and I, you know, as I thought about that too, I, I kind of did a thought experiment, you know, like suppose some Christians during the ap- apostolic period had, gotten saved by reading, you know, maybe they stumbled across some writings and they got saved by reading and, and Cyprus, let's say, and they went down to the, you know, Cyprus Starbucks and, Hey, uh, we all got saved. Let's, uh, let's form a church. But then they refused to enter into fellowship with the apostolic church, you know, based in Antioch and Jerusalem. And, you know, maybe the apostle Paul came through town. And so they, they didn't even bother inviting him to speak. You know, we don't want to invite Paul to speak at our, at our church because uh, that might imply that we're not, good enough on our own, you know, I mean, like just that whole way of thinking, it's, it's inconceivable. Obviously when you were saved in Cyprus or anywhere else, that meant that was almost identical in meaning to becoming part of the apostolic church, including submitting to its decrees and um, being in fellowship with them. You can't conceive of, you can't conceive of independency in that generation. Now, if it's not conceivable in that generation, how does it become conceivable just because more time has elapsed? I think that's a, that's a very now, one caveat I want to throw out here, though, is that some some groups that call themselves independents, such as the uh, New England Puritans, 
um, or congregationalists um, are, are really not independent in the Doug Wilson sense of the word. Um, the, the congregationalists of Puritan New England were, were basically Presbyterian. Um, they had a Presbytery meeting that ordained the ministers. Um, if you look at John Cotton's Book of Church Order, it looks very similar to our Presbyterian Book of Church Orders. Um, but they had, uh, they tilted the balance slightly in the favor of the congregation. So that the congregation had more autonomy to, um, up and leave if they wanted to and things like that. But more or less, as far as their, especially with regard to the, um, principle of ordination and, and sacraments, um, they were Presbyterian, more or less. So, you know, we've got to be cautious not to just like see the word congregational or independent and then assume that they're, uh, in this bad category. Um, Again, they they would I would put them in the category of a, a slightly defective form of church government that basically still was maintaining the principle of succession. That was why John um, Roger Williams got into so much trouble with them, you know, because he rejected the succession and uh, and that's why he couldn't be tolerated there. Really, yeah. <clears throat> when most Reformed people and Presbyterian people talk about the proper church, they go into the marks of the church and it would seem that this is the one mark they leave out. Would you care to talk about the, the marks of the church? Yeah. Well, yeah. So the, the reformers spoke of the marks of the church, which, which were ways to um, uh, sort of, you might say attributes that are essential, which when, when recognized are sufficient to identify a group as being in the church and the Lutherans, um, identified two marks of the church. And I think some of the reform did as well, which was the, the preaching of the gospel and the, um, the proper administration of the sacraments. And then the Scottish uh, added a third mark of church discipline. Um, and that's, that's often cited in American Presbyterian circles um, with a three mark concept. I, however, favor the two, two mark model because I think that once you kind of unpack the hidden genius of the marks, church discipline follows as a consequence and therefore it doesn't need to be mentioned. And by keeping it to the two marks, there's a real beauty there because it kind of correlates nicely with form and substance or um, concept and reality or the formal and material, all these types of distinctions that crop up again and again in our way of the taxonomy of our thought uh, overlays very nicely over the two marks in the following sense. The, Proper administration of the sacraments kind of has what I've just described about succession built into it because all of the churches that I've described, whether Presbyterian, Lutheran, or um, Episcopal, not to mention the Orthodox and Roman Catholic, for, for whom it goes without saying, all of them say that the sacraments can only be administered by a properly ordained minister or priest or you know whatever word they use. And therefore, when they say the proper administration of sacraments, it already presupposes that you have an ordained ministry to administer those sacraments. In other words, the proper administration of the sacraments doesn't just mean that you're using, uh, you know, sourdough bread and wine uh, when you get together with your buddies and uh, say that you're having communion, but it means much more than that. Not only should you be using the biblically prescribed elements, but you should also, they should be administered authoritatively by the executive agent, the minister. So, in a sense, that mark, that second mark, already builds in 
what, what we've just been talking about of the apostolic succession. Now, on the other hand, the mark of the, pre, the pure preaching of the gospel is important also because otherwise you have the situation like Roman Catholicism where having the ordination is not only necessary but sufficient. So they can basically give up the gospel altogether in some, in some quarters and turn the, turn the church into a money laundering racket like it had become in Rome at the time of Luther. Uh, and they fall back on, yes, but we have the mark of ordination. To which uh, Luther rightly says, yes, but you don't have the preaching of the gospel. And so we need both of these marks. Only the first mark really seems to be latched onto by this American concept that, that you've mentioned, where people just think that uh, we're, we're Christians, therefore we're a church. In other words, we're basically all we need is the, the preaching of the gospel. So to me, it's, it's, it's very clear that you have kind of a formal and material principle where, you know, the formal principle being the concept of succession. And then the material principle being that which draws us together, which is the preaching of the gospel. So these are two concepts that are kind of like kernel and husk that hold tightly together. And so they're a very properly understood. It is a very adequate um, way to model the church, provided, again, that you, you dig and discover what's implied by those concepts. I've heard some debate on whether John Calvin himself was ordained by the Catholic Church. Do you have a take on that? Well, as I mentioned before, um, we don't really, With we don't, as far as I know, we don't have any historical record of the, even that he was ordained, let alone where he was ordained yeah. or by whom. But if you go to um, the Institute's book four, section uh, chapter 19, section 28, th- this is a passage which blew my socks off when I first read it about 15 or 20 years ago. Um, because Calvin basically, he simultaneously criticizes the Roman Catholic abuse of ordination with one hand, but with the other hand, he basically says, I would be perfectly willing to, to call ordination a sacrament. So basically Calvin, he says, the only reason I don't list it under the sacraments is because it doesn't apply to all Christians. It only applies to some, namely those that are called to office. That's the only reason he doesn't call it a sacrament. Well, anybody that knows Calvin knows that anything that even in a, in a limited sense is called a sacrament is, is going to be obligatory. It's not just something that you can choose, take it or leave it. So therefore, in Calvin's theology, um, ordination is an absolute requirement, reaching the level of a quasi-sacrament. And therefore, it's inconceivable that he would have continued to maintain office without being ordained. So... To me, it's an, it's an airtight argument, you know, even though we don't have a historical, like, minutes of the presbytery that indicate when he was ordained. So whether he had already been ordained in France before he um, came over to the Reformation or whether he was ordained by Farrell and company when he got to Switzerland, that I don't know. Yeah. That's, but it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It's, it would seem unlikely that he would have a high view of that and yet be able to be called out for lying about it. Or, you know, no, yeah, it's, it's inconceivable because anything that he would call a sacrament, he would not regard as optional. Yeah. He would never show that baptism is a sacrament and then say, but, but you can take it or leave it. You know, get baptized if you want to, but if you don't want to, that's okay too. Yeah. I mean, that's just simply not conceivable. Well, let's get into the question of you have legitimate churches. You've got the fake, phony Starbucks churches. But what happens when a legitimate church, as we just alluded to, that has proper ordination 
becomes corrupt in terms of the material gospel matter, what's the what's the proper way of continuing this church of of being of of leaving a church and how does this church continue when it's so when it's so doctrinally unfaithful? Well, um, I guess there's a number of things we could talk about in that regard. Um, one is that at the end of the day, I, I take Gresham Machen as my model because Machen was in a church that was in rapid decline, but he didn't up and leave and start the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He continued to fight for the gospel and that missionaries should be true believers that are trying to spread the gospel and so forth. And that was really the issue that got him and that finally got him uh, defrocked. So he was, he was in a sense faithful both to his church and to the Lord. And it, and it finally became, because of that, it became, he became unbearable to those that were power mongers in the church and they uh, conspired to have him ousted. And of course, all of those that were with Machen in spirit and ordination uh, felt like they were thrown out with him and formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So it wasn't like, let's go out and form a new church. It was more like the church that they were in kicked them out and they continued to function as a church, taking on a new name. Um, so that's kind of the model that I um, hold up as the ideal, is that uh, basically you stay, in, you stay in the church until uh, you're kicked out for orthodoxy. Now, does this apply to laymen, or does does the does it apply to those who have been installed as elders? Well, um, chiefly to the elders, of course. Uh, and I I also want to add some caveats when when you're in a place like America where there isn't an, an established church. You know, it's okay to like leave your communist Presbyterian church and go down the street to a Missouri Synod Lutheran because both of those are equally available to you uh, here in America. So it's a little bit different than if you just had basically the established church, and now the question is, do you have the right to just go and start an independent church? So in America, for the layman, there's a little more latitude, I feel. Um, but nevertheless, the, the, the principle is there. And one thing that really struck me, you know, I think that maybe we, we from the lower churches, like from the um, Presbyterian and Baptistic type churches, like most of us probably are, could learn something from our high church brethren. And this was really brought home to me when I was in um, Italy last month or a couple months ago. I went to the Anglican church in Florence. They have one. It's a nice, big, beautiful building, a permanent structure. And the, the rector there, it was a, um, his sermons were frankly, works righteousness pablum, you know, worthless garbage. Um, Tickling of the ears, you know, with lots of pseudo-intellectual, you know, in turns of phrase and insights and so forth, but but basically garbage. But yet you looked around the um, people there, the visitors and members and so forth, a lot of visitors passing through. What did they get out of the service? Well, they basically probably mostly got the liturgy and the hymns. And the liturgy and the hymns still have the gospel in them. And so I got to thinking about, about it that, Probably the reason that so many people survive in a church like the Episcopals and don't have this kind of constant itch to go out and form a new church is because the gospel still is kind of there willy-nilly. It's, it's, it's in the liturgy. It's in the, um, the hymns. And they, they probably don't get a whole lot out of the sermon anyway. Whereas from people from our circles, it's, that order is exactly inverted. You know, it's, everything is the sermon. 
and you listen to the sermon and you're critically evaluating it and you know is this is this guy doctrinally sound and and the the liturgy and the and the music the the hymns is almost like just preliminaries it's not even that that big of a deal so i guess one of my um first you know offerings to for us to think about to rethink is to maybe try to model our our life as churchmen a little bit more like the episcopals do where if you can go and sing the psalms and um you know say the lord's prayer communally and maybe recite the creed or so forth you know you're getting the real action right there and then if you also get a great sermon that's that's like icing on the cake but um you know maybe we should be a little less hypercritical on every jaunt and tittle of the of the um out of the pastor's mouth again i don't want to imply that i'm lax on this subject i think the elders especially in the presbyteries need to be very diligent to uh root out heretics and and weak men but i think that you know this mentality that we're all on the edge of our seats on pins and needles all the time even laymen and women and children everybody you know it's it's not a healthy environment our, our first focus should be on the real stuff of the worship and then um, also work for the pastor to be giving good sermons but at least have that to fall back on you know in the case of the presbyterians our, our heritage is the singing of psalms and you can't go wrong there um and even where hymns have been adopted, you know, the, the traditional ones are, are quite good, usually. Um, then there's the public prayer. There's not, you know, there's not as much that can go wrong with that. There's the sacraments. There's, um, if you have a slight amount of liturgy, you have the creed and, and the Lord's Prayer and so forth. So these are all, this should become the, the framework that we kind of um, situate ourselves in or center our thinking in terms of. And then at the same time, it's sort of an after, a secondary level, try to get pastors to give good sermons. <laughs> you you mentioned the public prayer. I just had a thought that came to my mind. One of the last public prayers I heard by our, our um, either an elder, or a ruling elder, or a pastor was, and I've heard this. I've heard, I've heard this prayer a number of times, and it, it bugs me. But it's Lord, please give Barack Obama wisdom to properly guide this nation according to your laws. And now, while he certainly could do that, it seems that Barack Obama is bent on destroying this nation according to, you know, Satanism. And maybe it's more appropriate to pray imprecatory prayers. But I've always been, I've always been bothered by that, that kind of appeal to what is Romans 13 or another passage where it says, pray for your ruler, uh, pray for your rulers. And certainly we are too, but it doesn't mean that we have to pray these, uh, really cheesy prayers. Well, yeah, I guess. You know, probably the intent is good, and, and we should pray for our rulers, but I think maybe what you're sensing is, is that, you know, the prayer that wisdom will be given is sort of a vacuous one, because even Solomon was given wisdom because he asked for it. And, um, there you, go. you know, when you have a man that, you know, is bent on the opposite of that, what would it, what would it look like if, if God gave him wisdom? I mean, it would, I guess it would look like a conversion experience, but... Yeah. Um, but yet they're not willing to pray that he be converted. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, and and imprecatory prayers in general are something that's you just don't see that in the Reformed Church. That's true. And there are, I know John Weaver. He's no well. He's a he's, he calls himself Reformed. He's a Baptist, independent Baptist. But God bless him. He actually does 
teach his congregation to pray imprecatory prayers. So uh, I, I sure wish we who have this great heritage of the Reformed faith could at least do what Luther and Calvin did. Yeah, I'm not um, I'm not real up on thinking about imprecatory prayers right now um, as much as I, I gave it a little bit of thought a long time ago, but I guess it's been sort of uh, bypassed with the flux. There's so many things to have to um, yeah. think about. Um, you know, I guess the danger, not that you would fall into it, but the danger would be like becoming promiscuous with our um, imprecations um, and kind of turning it into a uh, bludgeon. Sure. Um, you know, I, I guess for us as Christians, our imprecatory prayers should also always be caveated with, um, you know, the hope and the prayer that um, not judgment, but reform and conversion would would ensue in the first place. But nevertheless, it's entirely appropriate to pray that our our distresses be relieved, either through the conversion of those who rule over us or through their removal. Yeah. And I think that was the, the language of Luther. Please convert our enemies. If not, then remove them from us. Right. And I, I guess what I'm getting at is just the general lack of understanding of the antithesis that the reformed people have lost. That's right. And well, you think of the um, preface to Calvin's Institutes addressed to King Francis. Uh, it's a brilliant um, yes. rhetorical piece. It'd be worth going back to reread, but um, there he confesses um, their submission to, you know, the, the French Protestants submission to Francis as their King and their willingness to even go to the death, you know, as good citizens. But then at the very end, he says, you know, but, you know, if you continue to whip up your fury under the the wrath um, churned up by Satan, you know, killing these innocent sheep, may the estates, may other magistrates that God has ordained, such as the estates, rise up and uh, right. and and take uh, take matters into their hands and oppose you in it. And so, even at the even in the very act of um, explaining their submission to him as their lawful sovereign. He also is giving the thinly veiled threat that if he doesn't shape up, um, his prayer is that uh, God will raise up other magistrates that will remove him, namely the estates. Here's a question. Of course, in our situation, the, the question is, you know, who are the estates in our case? You know, at one time we could have said it was the, the states, you know, not the estates, but the estates. Yeah. But after Lincoln's uh, war of aggression, you know, that's that's been eviscerated. So, like, who do we pray for now to rise up and and protect us from uh, the yo mamas of the world? Yeah, I don't know who we do. Yeah. I, I think there's there's a, a general there's a general pietistic uh, flavor in in the church right now and we've lost the dominion mandate in general so that isn't a question that even <laughs> registers on the modern church's paradigm there's a question in the chat room and if anyone has any more questions please ask those there from Lazarus Calvin seems to say on several occasions in the institutes that catholic orders were nothing but empty titles not really valid what's what's Calvin getting at there well like i said um in that in that section in book 4 um I don't have it in front of me, 19, I think, um, when he talks about this. He lays into the um, Catholic orders quite vigorously because of all the ways that the, that the um, practice had been corrupted. 
you know, I mean, not just the selling of offices, but uh, abuse is too many for me to even try to remember. Um, so he does use that type of language, very harsh language. But what's interesting, again, is, is that it's in that very same basic section or chapter that he um, says he'd be willing to identify the or ordination as a um, as a sacrament. So he, he's defending the proper view while uh, laying in very harshly into the uh, Catholic practice of it. Now, I guess the question maybe maybe that the um, questioner is raising here is whether Calvin's rhetoric, um, whether it follows from Calvin's rhetoric that he denied um, any legitimacy to right. those that had been ordained in the Catholic Church. In other words, can we infer from this that Calvin taught um, a new order beginning with them without any succession? And that, I think, would be going too far because um, as far as I can tell, they did not go around reordaining any more than they went around rebaptizing. So despite all of the uh, abuses that had crept in that needed to be disparaged and were disparaged with very strong language, um, nevertheless, they seemed to hold on to some legitimacy. Um, same with the baptism. So in other words, the Anabaptists that wanted to reject the baptism that they inherited from the Roman Catholic Church were, were regarded as um, enemies of the state, people, and the church, just as much by Protestants as by uh, Catholics. What do you make of of how how far the church has really sunk into pietism and statism and anti family doctrines? Tribal theocrat is akin to site. We have a we have a special love for our family and extended family. Every church out there will run us out if they find out that we are kinists. They're very pro multiculturalism, which is white genocide, and all these things that are stacked against us, and yet we're called we're called to not have a fellowship with darkness. And so some of my Christian friends who are not in the church uh, will use that passage and other passages to be separate from these, these people as, as a, as a warrant or justification for not participating in, in corporate worship. I know that's a big question, but I think you understand it. The church right now is in a very bad, very bad place in terms of what they believe. And we're called to, have fellowship with them. In fact, some people even say fellowship is one of the marks of the church. Well, you know, I guess I would answer that along several uh, fronts. Um, you know, the first thing to remember is that for many of the um, people that have adopted um, multiculturalism within the church, um, they've kind of, it's not so much that they thought about it carefully and accepted that as a doctrine so much as they just inherited it with the air they breathe. So I, I try to I try to cut as much slack, remembering that many of us were thinking that way. I know I certainly was uh, 25 years ago. Um, so I, I slowly became exposed to uh, other ideas and uh, kind of thought through issues from the ground up. But it took many years, many years, even with uh, good guidance from others. So I, I try to first remind myself of that, you know, that a good number of the people in your church that are hostile to, you know, the ideas of uh, ethnic uh, solidarity, you know, they, they could, they could be brought over just like we were brought over. Right. So it's a matter of being patient, you know, presenting the ideas slowly and surely and, you know, hoping for movement in that direction. So that would be the first thing I guess I would point out. Um, 
I guess maybe I've been fortunate, but you know, I've, I mean, I've been in the OPC now for a number of years and uh, my, my thoughts on different things, such as the ones you've highlighted have raised eyebrows here and there. And I've even been spoken to once or twice, but by and large, it hasn't really become a, um, a heated issue. And, you know, I've taught Sunday school and uh, been uh, accepted as far as I can tell, unless people are, you know, whispering behind my back, but um, you never know. There's no way to, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean uh, they're not out to get me, you know, but um, <laughs> so, so there's that, you know, and then the other thing too, is that I think that we have to um, not try to turn the church into um, a hobby horse for some of political ideas. Not that what the ideas you just uh, outlined are political are merely political. I mean, they, they go right to the sinews of life, but they're also not necessarily right at the heart of the cultic, the, the cult, namely um, worship. So, you know, we can gather together with people of all nations and sing the Psalms and break bread. Um, so within the church, we can take a slightly more low key approach, I feel. Um, and, and one bit of advice I would give there too, is that, you know, when, um, when defending some of our views with your typical modern churchmen, I would, I would strongly recommend um, defending the, um, what you might call the, the um, well, you could call it the weak form or the strong form, depending on how you look at it. But um, the weak form of the thesis, which is therefore the stronger one to defend or more, more easily defended. So, for example, um, I would never like try to argue with somebody in modern church that every nation should exclude aliens from its borders but rather argue a nation is within its rights to, to control its own immigration. And that's, that's something that who could, who could argue with that? But nevertheless, if you can establish that beachhead, you, you've undercut, you've pulled the rug out from under their um, um, attack yeah. on the stronger thesis. And similarly, you know, like I would never try to argue that miscegenation is always sinful. But on the other hand, you could argue that a nation or a tribe is within its rights to insist that its young people marry within its own tribe. And, and another uh, another tip I would give is that whenever possible, use Japanese or Koreans or other, you know, non-Europeans as your example, like because it, it lowers the emotional um, sure. temperature quite a bit. You could say but, something like, you could say something like, "Don't you believe that Koreans have a right to?" to exist should Koreans have a, a, a future for Korean children. That's right. And then you can ask them like who on earth would have thought that, you know, these a Korean gets converted to Christ and now he's obligated to marry his daughter off to a Vietnamese Christian. Right. I mean, like who, where, where would that idea come from? Why, why would anybody, why would that thought even cross somebody's mind that he, he's obligated to think that way? Um, and, and I think that if you kind of approach it with the weak form of the thesis that way, and then use other peoples as your t test cases and illustrations. Uh, you can um, you can make a lot more headway. And then, plus, you know, I've just gotten more and more confident. I mean, I feel like our position is is the right one, and it's it's the only one that can be argued for, and it's the only one that can be defended. And therefore, we can kind of uh, you know be a little bit more relaxed in our uh, in our confident appraisal. I mean, it's the other people that are crazy, yeah. and so. When you're dealing with 
nutty people at a nut house, you know, you don't necessarily always get up on your soapbox and yell at them. I mean, you, you kind of pat them on the back. They're there, you know, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, calm down. Um, and that's kind of the, kind of the emotional attitude that I would bring into it. You know, the, the kind of that air of confidence that one can have when you know that you're right. And, and I don't mean that in an arrogant kind of way. I mean, I feel like we've paid our dues and done our homework and thought through many of these issues from a very foundational level. And of course, we know from our arguments we've gotten into what, what a shaky foundation our opponents are on. Yeah. So, um, so far, this, that's worked well for me. I mean, even, and it, and it hasn't been that I've been without controversy. It, of course, it leads to he, very heated discussions, but, but yet people kind of know that, well, first of all, they kind of have that sense, are you one of us or not one of us? There's sort of a um, irony here. If people are too quick on the trigger to up and leave, that's sort of an anti-communal indication right there. Because the, the first thing you need to know about somebody that's part of your family or your church or your nation or your group is that they're they're in it for the long haul. They're, they're really part of you, even when you disagree. And um, as Americans, we've gotten this very trigger-happy, vote-with-your-feet vote kind of attitude because of our history, our, our unique history. Uh, some of that should be resisted, I think. Question, another question from the chat room. What do you do when you are actually disciplined for talking about kinism? And this is actually the case with a friend of mine. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'd have to get a little more detail, like, I mean, are we talking excommunication or are we talking a scolding in the back room or, um, yeah, you know, I, frankly, I, I think that if it ever came, if you ever had a, a properly constituted church, you know, with a church court system, like the Presbyterian system, and somebody was brought up on charges just for holding the views you outlined, then I think we ought to get rally people that can help to defend it, you know, get counsel and get martial arguments and uh, have witnesses appear. In other words, if it ever does happen, let's turn it into a, a test case. Um, let's not just let this become a star chamber kind of thing where the um, murmuring alienists can um, wreak havoc, you know, in the back room. So I'd have to get more detail, I guess, on, um, on how that happened. But at the same time, you know, I would first also want to make sure that the person hadn't um, been unduly provocative. In other words, not that that makes him that he should be excommunicated. Obviously, I'm not saying that, but you know, don't don't poke the lion in the eye with a stick. I mean, uh, walk gingerly when you're in front of the lion, and um, then if he still attacks, let's get the guys together and fight back. But um, you know, let's not go poking our uh, our our fingers into the eye of of lurking lions and leopards just to see what's going to happen. So I don't know if he can follow up maybe with a little more detail, you know, the circumstance. Okay. Yeah, so I think it would uh, it would probably alter how we would go with the um, thinking about that subject. Some of us have, have discussed offline the, the possibility of of having an occidental church, a, a different denomination that is more friendly to the historic beliefs of our agrarian American forefathers right. like Dabney and so forth. Right. Do you have any thoughts about that? How would that come about? I well, know. I would be um, I would be against it right now, at least. Um, my own feeling is is that you know we could maybe get some clarity of thinking on this by making analogies to other 
institutions such as um, the family and the state. Um, you know, suppose you were in a family, uh, let's say you're a young person in a family, 16 years old or something, beginning to stretch your wings and think for yourself. And it was leading to just all kinds of conflict with, with the family. Nevertheless, we would say that it had to be pretty severe to justify that 16 year old just up and leaving the family and trying to set out on his own. You know, normally you would grin and bear it and put up with an awful lot in order to keep the family together. Right. And then it's the same with the, um, it's the same with the state. You know, Dr. Bonson used to teach that, um, civil resistance in the sense of re rejecting the lawful authorities was, was a theoretical option. But he said that if you do that, you have to go the whole hog. In other words, you can't just renounce the authority of the United States, but then still expect to get police protection, fire protection, you know, um, have people that attack you prosecuted in the court system and so forth. So in other words, he was willing to say, um, you have that right, but carry through with it consistently if you're really going to do it. And, and he, he thought it was hypocritical that so many people, uh, you know, went to measures to evade their taxes and, you know, pompously kind of, you know, like, I'm, I've rejected their authority. But yet at the same time, they still were basically living in that society and under the protection of the police and the court system and, and uh, you know, the civil order and so forth and so on. Um, now, of course, he was coming from a libertarian um, somewhat alienist perspective. So we have to factor that in. But nevertheless, I think there's a, there's a kernel of truth in what he was saying is that make sure you're, make sure we're not kind of trying to have our cake and eat it too, where yeah. we're, um, you know, we, we think that we're self-sufficient, but yet we haven't shown the kind of communal solidarity that is called for in a, in a body. Yeah. It's a little different with the church since, you know, it doesn't have the power of the sword. So we have, you know, a different set of parameters going on with the church than we do with the question of leaving the state. But it's, it's a little bit analogous in the sense of thinking of, you know, upping the ante. In other words, think of leaving, think of renouncing the existing established church as being kind of at the same level as renouncing your citizenship, including becoming an outlaw as a result. It's kind of at that level, just to kind of as a, um, I don't know, a uh, self-check as to whether there's self-deception is creeping in. A few more details on the situation of my friend in the chat room. Apparently, his elders have forbade him to speak to anyone in or out of the church about kinism, whether they are Christians or non-Christians. That seems a bit far-reaching. Well, that's right. So, in other words, um, there, I think you don't you don't obey that command sure. um, because you know that's exceeding church authority, first of all, and secondly, it's you know, it's, 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 um, it's almost asking you not to be human. Right. Um, to be human means that you form bonds and connections with at a variety of different layers with many different types of institution. And you have the right and ability to speak your mind and discuss things with people argue. I mean, no King or dictator can take that right away from you any more than they can take your right to bear arms and defend yourself. I feel, um, I mean, that's kind of a, a quick sidebar that's totally unrelated, but yeah. you know, Samuel Francis, I thought argued very brilliantly once that uh, our right to bear arms in self-defense is, uh, is not something that we acquire from the second amendment. Yeah. It's fundamental to uh, what it means to be a man. 
And um, no, no, even if we didn't have the Second Amendment, that doesn't mean that we would have to disarm ourselves just because some bureaucrat or even king says we have to. Yeah. Similarly, you know, when this when this church uh, made a pronouncement, you can't function as a human being. You know, expressing your thoughts and your mind um, with your friends. Uh, that's that's just simply um, exceeding exceeding uh, any possible uh, model of church authority. Um, now, within the walls of the church, I would go ahead and obey them, you know, because after all, what's the minimal participation of the church would be to show up for the worship service and then leave again. Um, so during that little part of their jurisdiction, I would go ahead and obey the um, the order, um, but certainly not um, outside the church, nor even would I allow it to apply to church members, like when you have informal fellowship and so forth. Um, now, whether you need to necessarily declare that to them, again, you know, it's a judgment call, but never poke the lion in the eye if you don't have to. Um, or like, uh, like my Jewish boss, uh, when I first started off work, used to always say, uh, you can't, you can't unring a bell. So, uh, you know, don't, don't ring the bell because there's no unringing it. Yeah. And I, I do agree with that. I, that's what I live by, I don't make myself an easy target. I don't go picking fights. I don't try to proselytize people to my particular views, but I do. I, I, what am I saying? I, if, if you corner me and ask me a question, I'm not, I can't lie to you. I, I will defend what I believe, but I don't go about trying to convert people. Well, that's I, right. And, and just in ordinary conversation, I find that there's ample opportunity to, to slip in a, a zinger that will hopefully make people think, you know, like, like now when the subject of this war in Israel, or I mean this war in Syria comes up, the Freudian slip there, um, <laughs> you can just slip in, you know, roll your eyes heavenward and yet another war for Israel, huh? Yeah. You know, and things like that. And then hopefully somebody will take the bait and then it gives you a chance to like yeah. explain what you mean and unpack it. And after 10 or 15 minutes of heated discussion, then, oh, I got to get home, you know, I, uh, I yeah. forgot, you know, uh, some or whatever, you know, don't let it go on for hour after hour because then it's going to create a scene. Sure. But, what you want to do is uh, shake people out of their comfort zone just a little bit so they'll start thinking. And, and I find that, you know, without going out of your way, that there's uh, – wherever I've gone, I've had ample <laughs> ample opportunities like that. And, and so far, sessions have not um, – you know, I've, I've, been, I've been addressed by sessions in a kindly way a couple times. But it's never kind of like they've never even hinted that the ante was about to be upped to discipline or that kind of thing. It's more like an expression of concern. And uh, <clears throat> maybe I, uh, you know, back off a little bit for a few weeks and then uh, in a natural kind of way, it comes back up again. And, yeah. uh, we looks, have to be kind of relentless, but at the same time, uh, you know, suaviter. It looks like in our friend situation, these people are heresy hunting. And he says, for example, that their whole session was voted to resign by presbytery without any charges. And now they have a provisional set of elders who rubber stamp the alienist minister. So that's a, that's just a, Oh, that's a bad situation. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's completely. Uh, yeah. That's the whole thing. You know, we're living in such an age of scrambled eggs. Um, you know, I criticize the um, RPC us um, for leaving the PCA back in uh, 1980 or so plus or minus. Because of all the good they could have done if they'd stayed in the PCA. But then at the same time, I see what a mess many of the presbyteries in the PCA are. Sure. 
So then you have to ask yourself, well, were they prescient? I mean, did they just kind of like see the writing on the wall? Or might might they have been the leaven that would have saved the PCA if they'd stayed in? These are things that are very hard to judge. But, um, yeah. you know, this is this is the stuff of life, I guess. You and know speaking I mean? of the PCA, I believe they've adopted a resolution that they don't refer to kinism, but they um, refer to the sin of racism and kinism would fall under the sin of racism. So if it's true that a kin is that a kinist is in a PCA church, he is thought by the, by the session to be living in sin. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I remember in one of those resolutions way early in my blog, I wrote a, um, a satire on maybe it was that same resolution back in, uh, in uh, 2006 where they uh, repented of the, not only their own sins, but the sins of their fathers. Oh yes, yes, I remember that. And and I pointed out how how absurdly self righteous that is, because their fathers didn't believe they were sinning, and so what right do they have to repent on behalf of their fathers? I mean, th- that takes vicarious repentance, you know, way to a, a way sillier level than Roman Catholicism ever dreamed of doing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> not only that, but their fathers defended their views, like Dabney and so forth. Um, so they're basically accusing them of being hypocrites and liars. So I, um, you know, if I end up in the PCA again, I've been in the PCA from time to time in my life also with my travels. Um, the one thing that kind of saves you in the PCA is that they don't, they don't take any of their pronouncements seriously, apparently. So, um, in a sense you can just, you know, like roll with it. And, uh, if it became a, um, if it became a, a touchstone at your local congregation where they were trying to like uh, publish it and say, you know, anybody that disagrees with this, we want to speak with you, that would become an issue. But if it's just the, you know, the old man at the general assembly letting off gas, um, I mean, my own denomination, the OPC has a uh, <coughs> question and uh, FAQ type of thing up there on their webpage. And they have a um, article on, uh, on a subject of kinism, I think. And um, it's full of the most nonsensical garbage. I mean, one of the st- sentences in that statement is that uh, the nations exist to provide members for the church. Th- this guy actually had the audacity to uh, uh, write off all of human history and all of its richness with a statement like that. The purpose of the nations is to provide members for the church. So therefore, in other words, in his mind, the only thing that really exists that has any importance is the church. And everything else is just a... Um, a breeding, basically a breeding stall to provide uh, members to get baptized and get pulled into this international church. Well, that's, that's, that's almost so ridiculous. I mean, why would, how could you even refute it? I mean, I hope nobody would read that and take it seriously. But eventually I may have to write a letter and, and ask them to defend it and tell them that I'd like to write a rebuttal or something. But in the meantime, it's kind of like day-to-day life goes on and you're kind of like, oh, there they go again, you know. So I guess that's kind of the approach I take. It's a bit pragmatic, but, you know. This guy who was asked not to speak about kinism inside or outside the church, he he just said this, that his minister said that he would charge Dabney if he were alive today and have him disciplined. Oh, yeah. No, I um, I think even the RPCUS would do that, actually. Nice. But the way they get around it is they say, um, I mean, this, this happened in a meeting I had with the RPCUS men. The way they get around it is they say, um, but if Dabney lived in our day, uh, you know, he would adopt our um, our multiculturalist perspective. So he was just a, a child of his time, they say. So uh, we, we can therefore forgive him. 
But see, that's so utterly, that's so beyond uh, laughable because far from that, Dabney would see if he if Dabney could come back from the dead, he would see that all of his most dire predictions come come true. Yes, that he was ratified in everything he had said. Everything. <laughs> yeah. Except that it was even worse than he predicted. It was worse. Was pretty bad. <laughs> it, it is worse than he predicted. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, just the, the the arrogance, the arrogant audacity of suggesting this. Well, if Dabney, you know, lived with us, he would see how enlightened we are, and he would uh, he would change his mind on on all his views. It's just such a, only only a pompous ass could 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 even think a thought like that. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> It is, it, you know, you've, eh, never mind. I was going to ask. I'll skip on that one. Well, we've covered it quite a bit. Any other points you want to bring out? Any kind of conversations you want to get into? Um, I'm, I'm asking for more questions in the chat room. It looks like I don't see any coming. Well, let's see. Let me skim through some of the little jots and scribbling that I wrote down sure. here. Um, now, Joe Moorcraft thinks highly of Dabney. I don't think Moorcraft himself was very friendly of uh, the Kenneth's beliefs of Mr. Dabney, though. That's an no. odd, that's an oddity. Uh, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I mean, the the group that was examining me was not it did not include Joe Moorcraft, but it was mostly RPCUS guys, and uh, which I, who I think are pretty much in lockstep on that. Yeah. You know, including one that really did persecute a fellow in the Virginia Valley, um, driving him out of his church essentially, um, because of these views. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's where it gets disgusting is when it was when these Christians, these brothers in the faith will actually go after you to try to make your life miserable, if not ruin your livelihood. Uh, that's right. It it's is disgusting. It is terrible. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, as far as, um, you know, just to, to repeat the point before, but maybe to, stated a little differently as far as like, is it time to leave a church? I would distinguish the catastrophic and the non-catastrophic leaving of a church. You know, if, if there's a, another church that you like the people and you think that you could function better in it and it's still gospel preaching. And in America, I think that because of our scrambled egg situation, it's legitimate to transfer to that church. Um, I would distinguish that from the catastrophic, which would be more like renouncing your citizenship, you know, where you literally would be driven to just not go to church at all or pretend like you could start your own church. And even that, you know, ultimately it's going to be up to each man's conscience, you know, we stand before God. So it's a matter of understanding the principles by which we'll be judged and um, analyzing your conscience. But I would just at least put it up at the same level as the type of crisis that it would take to, for you to renounce your citizenship. Um, and I think even as much as we hate the current administration and the, uh, actually the last hundred years of administrations in our country, um, we can also see kind of the invisible hand of God that, you know, life hasn't been that bad really. I mean, we've, we've been able to earn livings and uh, live in relative peace with our families and, and so forth and so on. And so as bad as things are, we still, very few of us are at the point of, really renouncing our citizenship right now with all that, that would entail in the Bonsinian sense of the word, you know? So, so I would kind of up the ante to that same emotional level as far as being willing to leave the church because of, uh, because of these uh, people that are 
that seem to be so so prevalent and so dominant. And again, remembering that you know, like Elijah, you know, there's five thousand that haven't bent the knee, and uh, in every one of these churches, there's probably many people that uh, would listen very um, receptively to your ideas. And um, so it's it's partly a matter of finding the um, the wisdom of knowing how to how to deal with people. And I'm certainly not pointing to myself as an example, but you know, because I keep learning new things as far as how I should do it differently. But I'm just saying this is kind of what I am learning. Is, is how to, you know, be spice and salt, but yet at the same time, kind of know how to function. In other words, let's pretend like we really were agrarians, that we really had a community of people that we're going to be stuck with for our whole life. You know, going to church together, going to the village, you know, town hall meetings together. Whether we agree or disagree, we're, we're in this boat together. Try to pretend like we're in a situation like that. I mean, we're hanging on by a thread. We have very little of that agrarian element right now, but we could sort of live in an as if kind of way, like try to pretend as if we were in an agrarian society and kind of, I don't know, develop a little bit of a sense of rolling with the punches, I guess. Good stuff. If there are any more questions in the chat room, we can go through those now. If not, I guess we could do some wrap up points, Tim. Okay. And anything you want to say about your blog is the Holy Catholic church series is that finished are you going to be adding to that i know there's three or four posts in that series oh yeah if you go to the um categories on the right and click the theology uh topic and then underneath that is the church um there's probably 10 or 12 um pieces there some of them are labeled hcc with a number um others don't yet have that uh appellation yes i do hope to uh um write more actually i'm starting to um i'm starting to uh, write a book actually on the subject because um people often ask for um like a good single book that explains this theory of ordination mm-hmm. and um church unity and so forth um national settlement concepts like that executive function and frankly i don't know of a single book that um and in fact, the majority of books on the church that I've stumbled across in my days are, are quite tedious. Yeah. You know, they just, uh, chapter after chapter with kind of inherited titles from the past, you know, the marks of the church, the invisible church. And it's just kind of tedious. You're, you're slugging through and just reading like interaction with medieval scholastic distinctions yeah. that, that don't connect with how people are thinking now. So, I mean, many of the ideas are okay, but. Anyway, so that's a project I'm working on. I don't know if it'll uh, be um, converted into blog posts as well, or if I'll just try to jump straight to a book or not. But okay, that is in the hopper. Should be interesting. Well, I'm I'm kind of taking um, Chesterton's Chesterton said of his books that um, something to the effect he he never really wanted to write a book. The only books he ever wrote were the ones that he wished somebody else had written. <laughs> yeah, and um, that's exactly how I feel about this. So yeah. it, it would it would overjoying me no end if there was such a book <coughs> that I wouldn't have to go to the trouble, yeah. let alone, you know, risk making a lot of mistakes that are, you know, going to do more harm than good. But yeah. nevertheless, um, that's a uh, good, that's a good approach. There's, there's a lot of regurgitation out there of different, of the same stuff over and over. Yeah. And usually the guys from centuries ago said it better than, than we do today. That's right. They, they do. But, um, the problem is, is that they, um, one of the problems with the, um, reading the Protestants on the subject of the Holy Catholic Church is that there's a reticence to 
um, adopt the principle of apostolic succession for a variety of reasons. Um, now, in the case of Luther, if you if you look at Luther's book, um, the his address to the German nobility, which is a great great book, um, everybody should read it. But he does have a paragraph in there where he plants this um, seed that says, you know, if the church is in such dire circumstances, like on a desert island, where there are, where there are no ordinances and officers, then the people of God would be well within their rights to set certain ones aside as their leaders and uh, basically ordain them. Um, and that that's tied in with the so-called doctrine of the priesthood of all believers that's associated with Luther's name. Um, the thing that's interesting about that, though, is that I never have seen, I've yet to find even a single example in 500 years of history where the Lutherans have um, put that into practice. In other words, where they've uh, either done that themselves or recognized a body that had done that. So even though there's that one paragraph in Luther, you know, it's kind of sometimes Luther's uh, rhetoric ran away from him, I think. You know, to make a point, he kind of overstated something and maybe said more than should have been said. Yeah. When they came back to their instincts and writing books of church orders and so forth, they seemed to fall back kind of instinctively to the sense of uh, ordination from men that have been ordained. And similarly, the Presbyterians... Um, partly because of the precedent that Luther set and partly because of their own nervousness. Like, are we really, do we really, can we prove our succession? You know, they've been very, um, many Presbyterians are very reluctant to um, um, advocate the view that I'm suggesting here. But there again, when you read the actual book of church order, whether even the PCA in its loosey goosey way, but the OPC, PCA, any, any book of church order I've ever looked at, it emphasizes, you know, the sacraments can only be administered by ministers. It has very detailed requirements of how ministers should be approved for ordination, and then they must be ordained by the presbytery and not just by ruling elders, but by other ministers, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at what's implied, like what's presupposed in their um, book of church order, it seems to be very similar to what I'm advocating here. But yet nobody's been willing to connect the dot and actually, you know, lay that out as a um, explicit requirement. Yeah. So that's why I think it would be useful to kind of put it in writing and let people throw eggs at it. But um, I've gotten into some pretty heated he debates with friends in the past, oh, uh, traditional uh, Catholics and traditional Catholics who uh, are adamant on the point that Protestantism is just a was a one of many Jewish revolutionary acts, and they think that. And I don't know how if you want to go into this or not, but if you do, I'd love your take on it. That Protestantism was your classic um, Jewish protocol of divide and conquer, and it's all bogus, and you need to be a part of the one, the the, right. the one right. Catholic Church. I've heard that from at least a few people. Yeah, I think E. Michael Jones. Um, e, yes, E. Michael Jones has a even he. I read it. He has a section on Luther in his big book. What's that big tome called? Uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. That's it. And his, his section argues that Luther was. Um, I don't know if he comes out and says he's, he was a Jew, but he's, he pretty much says he was a, a tool of the Jew. And who else says this? Uh, Maurice Pinet, I think, goes into this, too. Well, in the case of Luther, I think it's utterly absurd. I mean, um, you know, they've, Luther is such a compelling figure that they've had to try to attack him with all kinds of, um, you know, undercover. I mean, like one of the 
one of the favorites used to be that Luther had some some physical ailment. I, I forgot if it was constipation or something, and and then that ailment seemed to give be relieved when he um, entertained this this idea of justification by faith, and so that became. So it was just all based on a medical condition, basically. It was the only reason that he adopted it. And, you know, things like that. But when you read Luther, you know, the, the purity and the um, the pure piety that just radiates from his uh, work um, puts all of those to the lie, in my opinion. Um, and especially when you look at Luther's own, Luther was very hopeful toward the Jews uh, early in his uh, career. But uh, as we all know, he um, he changed his view considerably when he found out what what uh, Judaism was all about. Um, now, whether he had been a pawn, I mean, in what sense could he have been a pawn? I mean, they would have had to infiltrate the Augustinian monastery with Spalatin, who appointed him to, um, you know, preach in Witten, Wittenberg. In other words, until you can connect some dots and make it a plausible thesis, to, as far as I'm concerned, it's just mudslinging. Now, on the other hand, you know, later on in the um, in the 1600s, Late sixteen, middle of the late sixteen hundreds is when the secret societies, like the Rosa Christians, uh, sprang up. These secret societies, which I, I, I could well believe were infiltrated and uh, um, steered by Judaic influences, that, that would be easy to um, to believe. And many uh, Catholic kings um, did have to stand up and take a, a stand, but I believe Protestant kings as well. In other words, this was seen as a threat to all. Uh, nations, much as the Anabaptist movement was. As far as I can tell, I'm giving kind of a broad stroke of view, but it's true that certain certain Catholic kings, but I believe also Protestant kings, um, fought fought the secret societies, which could have been a um, um, a way. And then you know the Masons when they rose to prominence and so forth. But you know the idea that Protestantism as a um, as a general movement of the justification by faith alone could have been a Jewish um, movement, just seems silly on, on the face of it. But at the same time, you know, you look at, like, say, the Dutch Jews, for example. So these were Jews, the Sephardics, that got driven out of Spain, and because Netherlands was a territory of Spain for a while before they got independence, many of the Sephardics uh, resettled in Netherlands. And then that was about the time that the Reformation really um, took hold in the Netherlands. So you could imagine that the Jews would have used whatever influence they had to um, encourage the Reformation as a way of kind of putting up a buffer, you might say, against their um, Catholics that had chased them out of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella and others later on. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if we, if we could find some places where Jews, um, you know, latched on to the Reformation and saw this as, as a way of the subversive spirit, to use E. Michael Jones' uh, model. But that that would have been opportunistic. In other words, that's not that's not the thing that made the Reformation happen. I mean, the Reformation happened because of the rediscovery of the gospel and the fact that it, it, it uh, inflamed people's hearts when they heard it. Um, so then you have the Jews willing to inveigle themselves into that on the one hand, but undoubtedly also into the, the Vatican on the other hand. I mean, I've I've had many suspicions as to whether some of the cardinals and popes may have been uh, conversos myself, just just by you know looking at how they rule. This, this current one is certainly no prize in that regard. This current one is actually calling for a uh, investigation of Poland because Poland has um, outlawed kosher slaughter. So, so now you have yeah. the pope actually, as if he has any authority, calling for 
Poland to be investigated. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? It's pretty outrageous. I, I mean, kosher slaughter is something so uh, cruel and inhuman, it should be outlawed in every country yeah. of the world. And so uh, it, it made my heart leap for joy when I saw that Poland actually had outlawed it. Wow. So wouldn't you know, the Pope is uh, marching in. You know, we got to have an investigation about this. Yeah. So in other words, as far as Jewish influence goes, you know, I think that we could look for <coughs> we could look for um, influences on both sides of the divide, and we should probably both be eager also to root it out of our own midst as well as point it out in the other camps. But it's it's kind of opportunistic, I think, on E. Michael Jones's part to uh, try to use this as part of his anti-Protestant polemic. Uh, a lot a lot of his work is great. I mean, it's very um, his work is fantastic. But you do have to re- read everything he writes about Protestants with a um, you know, with a um, squinty eye, because you have to understand how how polemically committed he is to defending the papacy. It's kind of said differently. He's 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 quick to see the speck in our eye and not the log in his own eye, right. as far as his you know meaning of Roman Catholicism's eye. I wanted to ask you before I forget and before we wrap up about your opinion of Eastern Orthodoxy. There is somewhat of a swell of kinist interest in that group and i've got some friends that are orthodox what's the extent of uh, ecumenicity we have with these folks well one one of the great things about the eastern orthodox church is that it never has officially repudiated justification by faith alone now having said that you also don't find that on the tip of the tongues of your typical orthodox you know layman or priest you don't find them going around um talking about justification by faith alone. But the fact that it has never been officially rejected does give us a point of contact where that could be discussed, whereas you cannot, a Roman Catholic cannot entertain that and still be within the bounds they've defined for their dogma, just by, uh, you know, by the dogmas of Trent. It's been explicitly repudiated. But the Orthodox never have repudiated it. So in my mind, that gives us an entry. Um, I love the strong nationalism of Orthodoxy. I do too. So they've had, um, and that was reflected even in the fact that um, from the earliest years, their churches uh, used the vernacular in the worship service because they did have a sense of the national settlement. Again, that uh, you know you're you're a citizen of your tribe and you're a member of the church, and there's a harmony there, and therefore you should have you should use your own language and so forth. And the met- metropolitans, um, patriarchs, and so forth have a great deal of autonomy, you know, within their own region. Um, whereas the Roman Catholic until, you know, Vatican II, you know, insisted on Latin. And I can, I can admire the impetus for that to some extent to try to maintain a universal language, but nevertheless, it was a failure because it, uh, it left the common people behind to the point where they no longer were participating in the worship in any meaningful way at all. And so the Roman Catholic was always internationalist in that sense. You know, like we're going to have one international language even. So it was a, uh, denial of of the common man. You had to be highly educated to be able to even follow the Roman Catholic service, you know, until recently. Um, so, yeah, I've had a great deal of interest in Eastern Orthodoxy also, and I've wondered from time to time if that's kind of our um, escape hatch. But the, for me, the biggest problem um, personally going into the Eastern Orthodox, there'd be two things. One is that... Um, it doesn't feel right, and that's part of the ethnic character, right? In other words, for us to go to, like, say, a Greek or an Armenian 
Orthodox Church. You know, and you've got the Armenians or you've got the uh, Greeks or whichever ethnic group they're gathering around. And it doesn't, that's, it's great. You know, they have traditions, they have kind of their, their aesthetic, you might say, their aesthetic that, that, that their culture has developed over hundreds of years. That's not our aesthetic. Our aesthetic is different than that. Um, so it would be a very tough thing to blend in. You know, in other words, what you would almost have to have is a, um, a church that kind of looked and felt like an American church with that aesthetic that just happened to be affiliated with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And whether that would be possible or not, I don't know. Then the other, the other main obstacle I have, and would be a point of contention for me, would be the iconography, which is very central to its worship and liturgy. And in my mind, it is a violation of the Second Commandment. And of course, they point to the Seventh Ecumenical Council, but you know, there's a lot of history there too. There was a there was a a council before the seventh that ruled against icons, and then so the the, the pro icon party uh, called another one. And <clears throat> they said, "Well, we're the real Seventh Ecumenical Council, and that other one uh, is now <laughs> null and void." And then they came to the exact opposite conclusion. So now they point to that one. You know, see, that's why we can do it. So to me, that that just kind of points up kind of the Achilles heel of um, a tradition-based and ecumenical council-based church also. Yeah. That they, they're not able to admit mistakes that were made. And we don't have that promise, I feel. I, I think, you know, I'm speaking as a Protestant, but I think I would argue it with anyone uh, that we don't have that promise of infallibility. Yeah. We, we don't even see the, the apostles acting infallibly, except, except in the sense of when they, um, put their words to, to print in the, in the inspired scripture, but, but they made various apostles made uh, horrendous mistakes. And, um, you know, even in their council. So, I mean, so I guess a defender of the council is going to have to say that, well, it's the final vote that's infallible, not the, not the process that led up to that vote. Um, yeah. and then you still have the question. I mean, now inter as interpreted by whom, I mean, what if your priest, what if your the current batch of priests interprets it a different way than what seems seems like they were saying to you so is it it's not really the words that are infallible then it's it's the current living interpretation yeah but if that's what's if that's what's involved then it's really just a power game because it's basically just whoever holds the power um is infallible yeah. and there's and there's no appeal to anything scripture or a, a tradition in that in that sense so in my mind there's there's kind of logical contradictions as well as apparent violations of um, the second commandment that would be serious obstacles but I mean, what I would really welcome would be if um, if some Eastern Orthodox um, men would um, kind of get in, on board with the discussion points that I'm raising and and really engage with us on these points. But, you know, one of the things that Mike and I have both noticed is that um, this is true of both, both Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics. It, it tends to be that they're very quick and willing to teach, but not to be taught. So, you know, they love it when Reformed guys come and, what do you guys think about this? What do you think about that? And, oh, yeah, tell us about the history of the liturgy. And, you know, they love to have the eager beavers applying them with questions about Eastern Orthodoxy. But they never ask us, you know, uh, like explain your view of the sacraments or explain, uh, you know, how it is that you believe in Sola Scriptura. It's never a two-way street. Now, of course, that's just anecdotal. I'm not saying that it has to be that way, but we, we found that to be the case typically. So I guess the ones in our circles that are in in that circle or dallying with it, I mean, if you're willing to have the discussion and really wrestle on these issues with us, you know, I welcome you with open arms. Yeah. 
But if it just becomes another authority appeal, you know, we have the ecumenical councils and our bishops interpret them correctly. To me, that's just a, you know, that's just a power play. There's no, there's nothing yeah. to interact with there. I agree. That's well put. Yeah. You either submit or you don't submit. But like I say, I mean, to leave it on a positive note, again, I want to keep emphasizing that their lack of rejection, explicit re rejection of justification by faith, in my mind, is the is the point of contact we should really push hard on. Yeah. And we should really try to open up that discussion with them, since they're allowed to have it. <laughs> Good points. Well, I don't see any more questions from the chat room. I assume we can wrap up and... Okay. Yeah, brevity is a virtue, so uh, that's, that's good. Okay, and two weeks we'll have Mickey Henry on to discuss egalitarian envy. That should be a fun show. And then we have Bobby Lee Swagger coming back up in the future, and Robert uh, Fingleton will be back on to talk about special operations, which is going to be a really good show, especially what we're going through now with our wicked government. So thank you, Tim Harris, and check out his blog at butler-harris.org for more articles and we'll see you next time okay take care thanks bye-bye bye-bye